Welcome to the Heat Check. I'm Wes Goldberg. With me, as always, it's David Ramil. How you doing, buddy? I've done better, man. I feel like there's like this void in my life, and I can't quite explain what it might be. You know, it's not Heat basketball, but there's something somewhat related to Heat basketball. I can't quite put my finger on it. Can you? Yeah, it's something like this. Like I'm missing this irrational confidence, this this kind of cockiness that I don't really deserve. A little, you know, that that three-point shooting from a backup point guard position. You know, it sounds to me like you're talking about Mario Chalmers. Mario Chalmers. That name sounds familiar. Oh, right. That guard that all the Heat fans hated except for us. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe we haven't done a podcast since Chalmers got traded. Well, I think we were going through those stages of grief. I can't remember them all now, but I know I went through them at least once. And there was some alcohol and drugs related in there to get me through the the lack of chalmers in our life. But I think we're finally recovered from it somewhat. I can't say for certain, but I think I'm ready to finally talk about the move and, and the impact on the heat and, and the impact on Mario himself. I know. The third step of, of mourning is not doing a podcast, as everybody knows. <laughs> Absolutely. So we've taken a quite a while off here for various reasons that we don't need to get into because I don't care. But um, Chalmers is gone, and we haven't talked about it. But this gives us time to kind of sit back, reflect, not have knee-jerk first take-like reactions, and really kind of dissect how it's impacted the team. And we'll talk about a lot of things. We'll talk about Hassan Whiteside, Justice Winslow, some of the chemistry things we've noticed this season with the Heat. Kind of just play a little catch-up right now. But um, let's start right here with Rio. Um, I think the one thing we could say is Tyler Johnson's been really good. Absolutely. So that's been the positive. Yeah, no doubt about that. He certainly picked it up in ways that we never expected. We kind of liked what we saw from him last year, but I think there's always been that kind of doubt, particularly because of his size, that maybe he's not going to be that kind of capable and consistent backup, but he's certainly done it. He's, he's infused the, the, the rotation with a lot of energy. He's handled the ball well, limited turnovers, and he's always going to be aggressive in the way he attacks the rim. I'm not sure how his shooting's doing overall, but he's just been he's been a very solid backup, I'd say. I said this when the Heat had him on the Sioux Falls Sky Force and their D-League team, that he just moves like Russell Westbrook. I'm, I don't think anybody's going to take that to say, Tyler Johnson is as good as Russell Westbrook. Like, if you think that I'm saying that, just go screw yourself. But, like, he moves similarly similarly to, if I could ever say that word, I probably won't be able to, Russell Westbrook. I don't know, how many, how many guards, point guards, are athletic as Tyler Johnson? Like, give me, like, can you name five point guards that are head over heels more athletic than Tyler Johnson? Not off the top of my head. I haven't really given it much thought, but I've got to disagree with you. Having seen a lot of Westbrook in my coverage of the Thunder, I've got to tell you, I, I don't think anybody in the league moves like Westbrook. I mean, maybe like a point five. If you're going to look at Westbrook as a 1.0 version, Tyler Johnson's like halfway there maybe. And, and you know, that's that's still a pretty high level. That's certainly a higher level than either of us will reach. You know, no offense to you. But... Um, <laughs> I, I feel like you know Westbrook's on a whole different level. I mean, for all the criticism that he gets, 
his athleticism, his explosiveness is just off the charts. And that's partly why he's as effective as he is. Everybody complains that he's out of position as a point guard. That's all crap. To me, he's, he's just... He's in the top five of assists this season. Yeah, I mean, yeah. let's not even look at the numbers. I mean, it's just the positions are changing. People can't handle it for some reason. Everybody's more than willing to handle a stretch four or a guy like Draymond Green who's maybe six seven and handles the center position and is obliterating lineups as a result. But for whatever reason, if Westbrook shoots you know 20 times a game, he's shooting too much, he's not a point guard. That's a whole other story. I don't want to get into it. The point is Westbrook is on a whole other level. But Tyler Johnson is still really good. I don't want to detract from that. And I'm looking up the numbers right now. And, man, he's shooting 45% from three-point range. Yeah. I know it's a small sample size. I mean, we're looking at just a few shots from three-point range. But that's pretty damn impressive regardless. He's arguably Miami's best three-point shooter. And I say arguably because you could really have a good case for Gerald Green, obviously. Uh, he's a bit streakier, I think, than Tyler Johnson. But... Um, Tyler's been just phenomenal. He's doing all the dirty work. He's diving for loose balls, getting putbacks, getting rebounds, um, dunking, like shooting from everywhere on the floor. He's he has always ran the pick and roll pretty well, um, facilitating de- like a, with a decent job. People like him more than Goran Dragic, and it's just I don't know if if you're a Heat point guard, that's a rough life. Unless you're Tyler Johnson, apparently, because nobody was happy with Chalmers, nobody's happy with Dragic right now. The only person people like is Tyler Johnson. I feel like, you know, the, the the way Heat fans approach the backup point guard position is a lot like how football fans approach the backup quarterback position. You're never happy with the starting quarterback unless you have, like, you know, Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers. And you always the backup always looks better for some reason. That's, a, that's an interesting point. I've never really considered that, how, how hard it must be for the backup point guards. Because to me, you know, Miami's always had some success, at least back in the day. They always had some guy who would come in there for a cup of coffee or just a, a year or two with the heat, and they would propel themselves to large contracts. Remember Kayon Dooling? Right. Yeah, I mean, a bunch of guys that they just had that would always play well effectively here kind of reminded me of, like, the recent success that Tom Thibodeau had in Chicago where he was Mm -hmm. able to turn these backup point guards into very serviceable players, Um, DJ Augustine, Aaron Brooks, et cetera. So there have been a few that have gone through there. But Nate Robinson. Oh, yeah, absolutely, Nate Robinson. And and, and Tyler, I mean, let's admit it. He's listed at 6'4". That's a crock. I've stood next to him. There's no way he's 6'4". Um, there's always this underdog flavor to him because he came up from the D-League. He was undrafted. Nobody knew what to expect out of him. He kind of worked his way up there. That's a good story that people can really gravitate towards, so I think there's that. And, hell, the kid can dunk like crazy. I mean, you got to take that and, and, and look at it, and that's certainly something that contributes to why people are more than willing to accept him because as, so, as small as he is, Considering where he came from, he does have pretty elite level athleticism, and he can dunk, and he's aggressive, and he tries really hard, and and I think that all fits very well, and it you know kind of comes in there at the same time as Dragic is visibly struggling this season. He's not quite the same point guard he was in Phoenix. Um, he's there have been reports that he was out of shape. There's also been some uh, indication that I guess with his family not in South Florida, he was kind of depressed or in a funk about it. And that's totally understandable. Um, the out of shape factor, that's a whole different story, but there's feelings that he'll get back into shape as the season progresses. But you also have to take into consideration the fact that Miami's not playing in a style that ideally suits Dragic's talents. I mean, the pace is still 
really, really slow in Miami, and that's not Dragic's strong suit. He wants to push the ball. He wants to run. And Miami slows things down considerably, and they, and they put this you know speed bump in, in his way, and it kind of goes back into a half court offense. That's not where he's thriving. If you notice when he's most effective, it's when he's finding seams through past defenders, where he cuts through two defenders and gets his way to the hoop. I know he's missing an inordinate amount of layups, where he's always been traditionally a guy who finishes at a high percentage at the rim. But overall, it's still where he's more effective. It's just it's going to take him some while. There's going to we talked about this in our last podcast. You know, I know that was a while ago, but we did talk about it that there was going to be an adjustment period there, and I think Heat fans just have to slow down. And, and it doesn't help that he's making what eighty something million dollars over the course of his contract. So that's yeah. going to be a factor as well. Yeah, I don't know. The thing with Dragic to me is that um, I don't know if you. If it's an out of shape thing, or if this he's like depressed for some like all these, re- but he the chemistry thing is a real thing, and I don't I think a lot of fans view that as a cop out answer. But I watch these things, and you know how Wade has his relationship in the pick and roll with Hassan Whiteside. That's a really solid staple play that the Heat can run at any given moment and probably get a basket out of it, right? Yeah. So you would think that Drag and what we expected with Dragic is that oh Chris Bosh is perfect, right? He's He's got everything you want. He's a stretch four. He's got a good three-point shot. He's got the gravity. So, like, if you run him through a pick and pop with Dragic, you know, the defenders are going to have to pick. Do you do you sag off Bosch or do you let Dragic finish at the rim? That's, like, a deadly combination. But, you know, when, when we talk about it from an analytics perspective or just, like, a blogging perspective, a lot of times we forget these guys have to figure out where the other person's going to be on the floor for this thing to work. Because if the geometry isn't right, then the defense can cover both of them or defend both of them or at least, you know, move off of one to the other when the other one gets the ball quickly enough. Like, if the if the geometry isn't right and the shape of the play doesn't work out right, then the whole thing is moot. So that's something that they haven't figured out. I mean, every game I watch, they try to run that Dragic, Bosch, pick, and pop, and it just doesn't look smooth enough. They just don't have that relationship enough. And... You know, I think a lot of it is, you know, Bosch and Dragic never played together last season. You know, the Heat traded for Dragic. Bosch went to the hospital. And that happened the same day. Like, they, you know, Dragic played more with Wade and Whiteside and Luol Deng more than he played, you know, half a season, basically, that he didn't get with Chris Bosch. That's the, that, and that was the main component of that, op- of, of that offense for the two of those guys. People wonder why Bosch isn't shooting a high percentage right now. Because he's the only three-point shooter on the floor right now. You know, and that's crazy. And he plays power forward. You know, he's the only three-point shooter in the starting lineup. Dragic doesn't have that relationship with the guy that he needs to have a relationship with. Because he's not running pick-and-pops with Dwayne Wade. Because Dwayne Wade's not a three-point shooter. He's not doing it with Lowell Deng. Because Lowell Deng doesn't like to take three-point shots. And he's not really good at them. He doesn't position himself in that area very well. So... That's going to take a lot of time, and we're only, what, like, not even 20 games into the season? No, yeah, and, and that's certainly a good point, and, and you have to look at it, you know, Miami's still 10-5. and five. They've got the third-best record in the Eastern Conference. Right. So even if this is not working at 100%, which it should be lethal if it does reach that point, if it ever does during the course of this season, they're still playing well overall, and, and fans, fans have this irrational expectation of what, you know, Bosch and, and Dragic's combination were going to produce, but the point is they're still good overall. There's still a lot of different players contributing, so I'm not so I'm not so willing to, to throw in the towel on Dragic just yet. I think he, there's definitely hope for him. He's been 
solid overall, if not great or spectacular. I know that's what we all wanted and expected. It hasn't happened yet, but to your point, absolutely. They're human. They're going to have moments there where they're going to have to figure it out. It's not going to be automatic. They're both high basketball IQ type people. I think it's going to happen sooner rather than later. And the fans just have to have some perspective and some patience. So let me ask you this question then. Do you think that the Heat should start Tyler Johnson over Goran Dragic, not permanently, but for a little bit? And the reason I ask you this is because, hypothetically, let's say you start Tyler Johnson over Goran Dragic. Tyler Johnson doesn't need shots, right? And that's the biggest thing with that starting lineup is Dragic needs time with the ball to be effective. Dwayne Wade needs time with the ball to be effective. Chris Bosh needs the ball to be the most effective. Hassan Whiteside obviously needs the ball to be effective. Lou Aldang doesn't really need the ball to be effective. But four of those guys need the ball a lot. So, you know, four of those guys should be taking, you know, 10 to 15 shots per game minimum. Right. So, um, my reasoning is if you start Tyler Johnson, allow him to be just the athletic guy that gets in passing lanes, defends really well, um, is, you know, a dogged, earnest defender as you would say, uh, can hit the three-point shot better than Dragic at this point. Um, and then you bring Dragic off the bench with a lineup that has Chris Bosh and the Josh McRoberts guy and Justice Winslow and, and, and Gerald Green. In that lineup, he has a little bit more space, and that gives him a little bit more time you know, with Bosh, because Bosh right now is also the lone starter in that second unit. That's like their first you know, bench lineup incorporates Chris Bosh, which he's doing a really good job in. But if you put Goran Dragic in that lineup for a more ex- uh, extended period of time in a spaced-out lineup that incorporates McRoberts and, and Gerald Green as opposed to you know Dwayne Wade and those and Luol Deng, guys that clog up the paint, um, you're giving him more time and more space to practice that pick-and-pop with Chris Bosh among, among the other guys. And then eventually, when when Dragic is getting his his feel and his rhythm back, and and is feeling more chemistry with Bosch, you put him back in that start. Like you put him back in the starting lineup. Why can't we take Dragic out of the starting lineup for a while and then put him back in by the time the playoffs roll around? Well, to me, that's kind of taking a step back and kind of just being inconsistent with what you just said about the, the whole humanity factor. I don't think you can. Woo a guy like Goran Dragic, make the big trade that you did for him last year, get him to re-sign as a free agent for a huge chunk of money, and then say, hey, guess what, you kind of suck a little bit, so we're going to force you onto the bench and hope that maybe you'll get better. I don't know that you can deliver that kind of a blow to his self-esteem. But didn't the Warriors do that with Andre Iguodala? They signed him to a big contract, it was a big deal, Sports Illustrated did the big feature on him, I think it was SI about why he wanted to move to California, because he wanted to get involved in the technology industry after he retired and all this fun stuff. And then they put him to the bench, and it worked. Like, if it works, doesn't it work? Yes, but at the same time, I'm not so sure that it's the same point in their careers. I I, I don't know. Hmm. Maybe I'm mistaken. I think, you know, Goran being a lifelong backup, as opposed to AI being the starter, all-star that he was in Philadelphia and Denver, etc., I think that, you know, he, he could maybe afford to take that bench role a little bit more easily. And, it, you know, it wasn't something that he accepted right away. There were some bumps there, you know. That was just a really good team, and Steve Kerr just had a very good handle on it. And we're seeing how that's continued off into the season as well. They started off 18-0, for Christ's sake. So clearly, you know, whatever worked is still working. So, 
you're right that if it works, that's great. But do you really want to make that move and take a chance that it doesn't work, that he becomes disgruntled again, that you, you lose the confidence that you, you, you said you had in him when you signed him as a free agent? I'm not so sure it works at, at, at that point. It's also might, it might be a little bit too soon in the season for anything that drastic. And again, we're talking about a team that's been successful up to this point. Maybe they can get to that next level. Maybe they're not quite elite yet. Maybe that move makes them that way. But it could also be equally disastrous. So I'm not sure you want to kind of do anything that, that drastic. That's just my perspective. I mean, I can't. you can't say that you have to consider how the human factor plays a part in his lack of development or lack of production up to this point. And we're talking a 15-game sample size. So it's still something to have some perspective on. And then at the same time say, well, maybe let's yank him out of the starting lineup and force him to the bench. I think that could be a little bit disastrous. We'll see. And, and, and ultimately, we have to hope that Spolstra has a good enough finger on the pulse of the team to know whether or not it's the kind of move that you want to make. But to, to me, it just seems a little too rash, a little too drastic at this point, and I don't know that it would work. To clarify, I do agree with you. I just wanted to ask the hypothetical question. But, <laughs> um, no, overall, I agree. It's too, It's only been 15 games, like you said. It's it's about to be the, the heater about to tip off the Celtics as we record this. But, um, yeah, it's been too short of a time. And like you said, they're 10-5 and five right now. The chemistry obviously isn't there, and I've seen a lot of Heat fans kind of bicker over this. Is oh, it's not working, and the Heat fans, oh, it's working fine. It's ten five. It could be both things. Like, if this was working one hundred percent, the Heat could be you know eighteen and two right now, or or whatever, twelve and thirteen and two, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but there's room for improvement. But the raw talent of this roster and the depth that has been surprising. And the way that I guess that the the second unit and some of these other guys do really fit well with these other guys and these great lineups that Eric Spolstra has been incorporating, um, that's lifted them to ten and five. So they're okay, they're fine, they're one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference, but they can be better. So it's both Absolutely. things. Let me ask you a question: Do you think that there might be some kind of still, even after you know two years, there might be a little bit of a hangover from the Big Three era because that was. You know, up to what we've seen recently from the Golden State Warriors, that was the most recent example of perfect fluid chemistry. Maybe you can incorporate the Spurs in there as well, but you know they, they've been taken for granted for so long that you probably don't even consider them. I mean, when you think about from the Heat fans' perspective, what we saw in 2012, 2013, and maybe even at points in 2014 that represents such a high level of chemistry and fluidity in the offense, in particular. Uh, you know, with with the the flying death machine, et cetera, and, and the way that translated to fast break points, that now you kind of have this two years later, this kind of hangover saying, oh, that's not nearly as fluid and as as in chemistry as I remembered that big three team being. That's actually a really good point I never thought of from a Heat fan's perspective, not from the Heat players, not from like Wade and Bosch, like remembering right, the good old days. Okay, well, I think. You know, you look at the Warriors, right? And I was actually talking with about this with somebody else out here in the Bay Area. It's it's strange how Warriors fans will never say anything bad about the Warriors. It's like it's ne like Heat fans, even when they were great, they were talking about how yeah, but Mario Chalmers can't do anything. Why is he in the starting lineup? We need a new point guard. It's like we need a new point guard, really, because we just went on a twenty game win streak and won and went to four finals in a row. Do we really need a new point guard? You never hear that from Warriors fans. They're never like, yeah, 
but that Clay Thompson guy could hit a few more three-pointers or can learn how to pass a little bit better or something like that. Like, you never hear about that at all. Or Andrew Bogut shouldn't be in the starting line. Like, you never hear that. Um, never hear them attack Steve Kerr about his lineups or rotations. But I think that's because they've been so bad for so long that anything good, they're not going to say anything ill about because it's like, oh, we can't say we can't speak ill of this because it could go away in a heartbeat. And I think so when I think when Heat fans now they see what perfect basketball is like during those peak like 2012, 2013 Heat teams. Um, yeah, I think there might be a little bit of a hangover hangover because they expect like really great like bas you know defense on a string and right. and just like this great spacing and rhythm and you know great balance of half court offense and fast break offense and all of this. And then you, so you look at that and you see what the Warriors are doing from a Heat fans perspective. And they're like, hey, we used to do that. We used to be small ball. And then you look at what the Spurs are doing, and they're still great. They're easily the second best team in the Western Conference right now. And they're, they've reinvented themselves on the fly. They never had a down year where they went to the lottery. They've always been still good. You know, they went out in the first round last year, but that was kind of a weird series anyway. So, yeah, I think there probably is a little bit of a hangover. Yeah. I think you're right about that. Okay. Just curious because I, I think there, you know, there's certainly a lack of, of perspective there and of patience, yeah. and I mean, and that's just that's just South Florida and the Heat fan base in general. I it's mean, strange because it took us like half a season to get LeBron and Wade to work right together. Right, and and those I think were they'd be used to it by now. Exactly, they, those were all time greats playing at an elite level, uh, you know, at, yeah. at the peak of their powers, so to speak, and. and and there were still some bumps in the road. Everybody forgets nine and eight, and the, but all they remember is the twenty-seven game win streak. Yeah. Good times, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about uh, Hassan Whiteside for a little bit here. All right. Um, absolutely dominant. Just the thing is, his numbers are through the roof, but his on and off court numbers are not. They're not even good. Like the team seems to do better without Whiteside. If you look at on and off numbers, especially on the defensive end, which is strange. All right, lay it on me. Do you have those numbers available? Nope. Okay. So. All right. That was my bad. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for asking. Yeah, I, I agree with you. His his off court, the, the Heat are 3.7 points better when Whiteside's not on the court on defense. I just made that up. I don't know if that's true. Oh, um, damn. But I was trust gonna me. say, that's pretty significant. It's something like that, I think. So trust me. But um, my thing is, when you watch Whiteside, are you seeing empty statistics? Are you seeing just empty blocks? Are you seeing empty points, empty rebounds? Like, I'm not. So I don't. I'm not a big believer on on and off court numbers anyway, or per plus minus any of that stuff because I think it, there's so many other factors that go away from just the individual player that that are involved in that statistic. But, um. There are concerns. Are you I have concerned? some. I have some. I, I think, you know, you have to qualify it first and foremost that clearly he's leading the league by a huge margin as far as blocks per game. I think 4.8 and Rudy Gobert is under three. So, yeah. I mean, he's got a pretty big gap there. So, clearly a lot of blocks. But then there's also that tendency on the flip side to say that maybe he goes for the block too often. And as a result, he winds up leaving his, his his opponent you know for an easier score he goes for the upgate uh, up fake way too quickly way too easily way too frequently and so all of a sudden he gets up in the air and you get a guy driving by him for an easier layup or an easy dish at the rim 
So there are some negative tendencies there. Everybody loves the block. And again, you have to think about heat culture when you think about, you know, even as far back as Roni Cycli and Alonzo mm-hmm. Mourning and Shaquille O'Neal and those players, you know, the pivot was a, an intrinsic part of heat history. And so he's right in there. You know, people have gravitated toward his side and white side because he's kind of a, a reincarnation of those former greats at the center position. And, and now, you know, there are some holes in his game there. I mean, everybody loves the blocks, but there's also the flip side of that where he allows some points there. So I, I, I can see why the numbers would probably back up that maybe the heat's a little bit better without him on the floor. Yeah, and he did that a lot last season, more so than I think. I think he is being coached through that, probably by Alonso Morning. I don't see him leaving his feet as much. You're right, it's still a bad habit. It's still something he does. He gets really excited about the block. Yeah. But I think he's doing it less, which is all you can really ask for, right? A steady improvement, especially out does, of him. Does Synergy or anybody or Sports View or anything kind of keep track of block attempts per game? Because that's an interesting statistic. Because you wonder, I've seen him kind of leap up and go for it, you know, on layup attempts or even like jump shots, you know, because he, he's just so long. And I mean, he can get a lot of these crazy blocks that you don't expect him. Maybe maybe him and Anthony Davis and, and maybe a couple other guys, maybe Gobert, just because of their incredible le- length, the combination of length and athleticism, there are blocks that they can get to that other players cannot. But at the same time, there's still that tendency that maybe he, he goes to it too quickly and he allows an easier shot. Or worse yet, he gets into a foul situation. Yeah, I don't know if they keep track of those stats. As you know, I don't keep track of stats. I just say things. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say he goes for 18 block attempts per game, and he gets eight actual blocks, but Mm. then he winds up giving up another. I mean, these are just made-up numbers. But let's say he gets six We got to get Seth Partnow over at Nylon Calculus on this. Sorry? I like this. Seth Partnow over at Nylon Calculus. Let's get him on this. Absolutely. I'm sure. Block attempts per game is a very... Very interesting. So then you start measuring their block percentage and who has the best block percentage in the NBA. Right. Hmm. Yeah, because then you, you know, let's say in, in some perspectives, like specific plays, he goes for a block attempt at the top of the key or right at the top of the paint, whatever. And all of a sudden, he allows a defender to get past him or he commits a foul at least to two points. I mean, that's a bad play. That's a negative block attempt. And then and, and hmm. in that case, it's something to keep track of. Um, you know, then there's also the ones that he's going to get where maybe a, a, another defender lets a man get by him and then he's there to clean up his mess. And that's a good block attempt. So there, you have to kind of weigh these out and see whether or not they're effective block attempts, whether or not Whiteside or guys like Gobert. I think, I mean, you look at a lot of, I think, Utah fans and others have said that Gobert's block attempts are more effective. And I wonder if that's part of it. Maybe there's a... A negative feeling about what what Gobert, I mean, what what Whiteside does, as opposed to what Gobert does. And I don't know that. I don't know. I don't have the numbers, so I can't say for certain. But I wonder if it's worth looking into. I think it is. I think you're on to something, David. I think that um, I'm going to keep track of this in the next few Heat games that I watch. And you just break it down: positive block attempts, negative block attempts, and how many of each out of how many. Okay. Total block keep track attempts. of how many points each yield or, or denies. Mm, right. I like it. Okay. All right. We'll start doing that. And then, um, so that's settled. But my th- the thing I've noticed about Whiteside is, I, I what I like about him a lot is that he gets momentum from a lot of different things. Like, you see a lot of players like Curry. Like, 
he basically gets momentum from his three-point shot, right? And once he's got his three going, he's unstoppable. And then there's got you know there's other guys that are similar in, in different ways, like you know LeBron. Really, if he starts going on defense, then he gets like if he gets a steal and a dunk, then it's just like the whole game blows open for LeBron. And then, but with Whiteside, if he gets a putback or you know a dunk on offense, or even just if he hits like one of his little turnaround jumpers from like 13 feet that he really shouldn't be taking, but he takes anyway. He gets momentum from that. He also gets momentum a lot from blocks. Like once you get one, once Whiteside gets one block, how many, how many multiple block quarters have we seen from Whiteside? Like I bet you, if you took like a, a graph of all of his blocks per game, like I think a majority of his blocks would come in like one quarter. You know what I mean? Well, I mean considering he gets, you know, he's averaging over five blocks per game. Right. And considering his his stints are usually dictated not because of rest, I think, but mostly because of foul so, trouble. Mm-hmm. So he gets benched when he gets into foul trouble. And so when he's in there, he's much more effective. And I think you and I talked about this last year as well, that we saw him getting stronger as the game goes on. Right. Is it, is it, maybe it's just me, but I see him getting a lot of his blocks in the third quarter after yeah. halftime. He comes in there, he's much more aggressive defensively, and he just gets these swats. Like, he has one or two in, in the first half, and then in the second half, all of a sudden he's invigorated and energized. He gets three or four, and all of a sudden he gets these inflated six, seven block game numbers. I mean, that's, that's just ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. And it almost like he gets one block and you know that like two or three more are coming within the next 10 minutes, right? And he's also had multiple blocks in the same offensive series. Like, right. <laughs> you know, he blocks a shot, he swats it right down to either the same person who put up the shot at attempt or somebody else, a teammate. And then that guy tries to put up an easy shot at the rim, not expecting Whiteside to be able to climb up as the way he does. And he swats it back down again. I think you guys... I want to say there was a recent game, I can't remember what, that was like a, a perfect highlight where he blocked the same guy twice, and the second time was just so emphatic that it was just an incredible time. It was, it was probably one of the two Knicks games. I think so, I think so. It might have been Brooke Lopez. I think he swatted Lopez twice, and it was just pretty brutal in the process. Robin Lopez. Sorry, did I say Brooke? Yeah, it's the no. New Jersey Brooklyn. Don't, don't mistake them. Robin Lopez is the better Lopez. I will take that to my grave. Uh... I like Robin Lopez more. Oh, so do I. I mean, from a personal perspective, mm-hmm. I think. You know, well, they're both comic book fans, so that's good. But he does the little hair things. is one thing. He does little things. I think he's yeah. always in the right position, unlike Brooke Lopez. Brooke Lopez <laughs> is a good offensive mid-range shooter for a center. But I like Robin Lopez. If I'm putting a team together, I want Robin Lopez. And I will, I will find another mid-range big man to shoot, or another big man to shoot my mid-range shots, and I'll put Robin Lopez in the middle. I have no problem with it. New York has clearly improved, and I think yeah. that's partly due to Porzingis, but also partly due to Lopez's presence and, mm-hmm. uh, defensively. He's stable, and that there's something to consistency. Yeah. So Portland sure could use him. I can tell you that much. Absolutely. And um, okay, so let's keep going through this roster. Justice Winslow. He's been phenomenal. I can't like. I know we All had right. our reservations right. preseason. We're worried about him. He can't shoot. Da 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 da. He's a really, really good defender, David. I I know, Wes. I know. Twitter has been killing me, and you know, you know who you are. Whoever's listening, in particular, uh, there are a few people who have called me out on it, and uh, you know who I, you are. I, I'm sorry. You know who you are. Yeah, they know who they are too, and. Uh, you know, I was a little down on him. I, I went on a limb and said that based on what I'd seen in 
the preseason and at summer league and in person in summer league that I thought that maybe he wasn't going to be that kind of player that would blossom. I was dead wrong. I'll be a hundred percent honest with you. I don't think anybody, I think that's partly a general theme that's been applicable towards the league in general is that a lot of rookies have been really, really damn good and unexpectedly good at this point. I mean, this early in the season, small sample size, what have you, but you've got Carl Anthony Towns, you've got Porzingis, and you've got Justice Winslow. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm missing a few really key. Manuel Moutier in Denver. Yeah, been good. Stanley Johnson's been good. Stanley Johnson's been solid, even you know, off the bench, whatever, but, you know, really good role player. And that was a guy who I thought was going to be fitting really well with Miami, but Justice Winslow has been great. His shooting has been much improved. Mm. His defense has been phenomenal. Uh, willingness to guard any kind of player, and partly, partly I made my rash judgment on the fact that he's not as enthusiastic or as emotionally expressive as I'd like my players to be. But clearly, he doesn't care. He keeps it all inside, and it fuels him. And whatever works, it's been working. So guess what? I don't care. He doesn't have to be emotive, and he just has to be effective. And he's been that. So. I humbly apologize for making the stupid decision that he wasn't going to be a good player in the NBA. Yeah, it's like, you know, why leak the gasoline? Just keep all the gasoline inside, let it fuel you. He's just, the emotions just don't leak. He doesn't leak the emotions. He just lets it fuel him. So that's a bad metaphor. Whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I really enjoy watching Winslow. It's I think I latch onto a player on almost every NBA. Every NBA team, I would say, almost except for like the 76ers and the Brooklyn Nets, because I won't watch them. But um, there's a there's a player that I'll just watch for every team, and I think for the Heat, you know, I watch every Heat game. Obviously, Justin Swinslow is that player. I will watch him on every possession he's on the floor. I won't watch Wade. I won't watch Bosch so much. I really won't watch the point guard. Not even Whiteside. When when they do that Whiteside, I love the lineup where they have Hassan Whiteside, Luol Deng, and Justice Winslow in the front court. I love that lineup, and I will always watch Winslow. It's just, I love watching him play defense. It's so good, and he's the best perimeter defense defender the Heat have had since 2012. LeBron James, when he really cared and was trying to win Defensive Player of the Year, which he kind of got snubbed out of. If you know, don't mind me saying, but um, yeah, Marcus Sewell's not good. We don't need it. Um, so I'm just joking. Uh, yeah, I love watching and they, the heat just stumbled onto him and it's just, it's one of those things where you say, Oh, can play in the NBA right away. Or like the NFL rookies could play in the NFL right away. And you always talk about those guys. Like they don't really have a high ceiling, but they don't really have a low floor. He could just be what he is right away with Winslow. Yeah. He could play in the NBA right away. He can give you that def- the the defensive thing right away. But there's so much potential in offense. I mean, he just remind he he reminds me so much of Kawhi Leonard, and I just I hate jinxing it because Kawhi Leonard is a NBA Finals MVP. We'd be lucky if Justice Winslow was ever a you know a Finals MVP or that caliber kind of player. But he's he looks a lot like that, and his he's tra- he's trending right in that direction. I mean, you have to qualify it though because he just does not have the kind of physical. Freak extremities that Kawhi Leonard has. The hands, I mean, that, the hands, the length. Right. I mean, it's just he's at a different level, and and that's fine. I mean, you're talking about a guy who's 
finally coming into his own after just his fourth season, I think, or in his fourth season. Yeah. And he's really playing at an incredibly high level offensively and defensively. If he can get to 50% of where Kawhi Leonard is, he's still a steal at pick number 10 in the draft. And he's he's played to that point so far uh, perfectly. And, I mean, he's shooting at a higher percentage than I thought he would, even hitting 33% of his three-point attempts. That's certainly a lot higher than I thought he'd be able to pull off. I don't know if that was a criticism during his collegiate career, even though those numbers were inflated, you know, it was a shorter distance, et cetera. During the preseason, he was horrific. Everybody thought he might tank completely on that, from that perspective. He's been great. You know, he's, 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 he's really taking advantage of open looks. Uh, he's hitting the corner three at a higher percentage. Um, he's aggressive defensively. I mean, he's just been incredible, but offensively, uh, he's been better than expected. And he doesn't, he doesn't look like he needs to score either, but he can, he's, he's smooth out there. He's fluid. Um, yeah, he looks like a good player. And he doesn't I think need to score, good. right? Like, I think you just nailed it on the head right there. He doesn't need to score, which is incredible for a rookie, right? The rookies, you feel like they need to score to feel like they're really contributing sometimes. He doesn't yeah. need to score. He's just like when the player, like Chris Bosh and Dwayne Lewin, they say he's the oldest 19-year-old I've ever seen or I've ever played right. with. That I think what that means is he doesn't need to score to feel like he's contributing, which is great because you grow, you know, and you know, playing on the courts and then playing in high school and playing college, like, if you're not scoring, like, what are you really doing? Right. You know, we haven't seen a lot of players in college that felt like they didn't need to score to contribute. The only thing, the only really great college player that I could think of that didn't need to score to contribute is really, like, Anthony Davis within, like, the last few years is, like, Anthony right. Davis, who won, like, the, the you know, whatever March Madness MVP. I don't really watch college basketball that much. But and he scored, like, two points in the last game or something, and he won MVP. But, um... What I really I like about that's, yeah, that's the result of you know mostly where these guys get picked. If you're a lottery pick, chances are you're going to a really bad team, and they're mm. kind of depending on you to carry the load, not just offensively but offensively. At least, if not completely offensively, you know, you look at a player like Carl Anthony Towns or something like that. They were counting on him to be a really big scoring addition down low, but his defense has been so great that he's been an added boost, and that's mm. why a lot of people think that he's credible. Look at. You know, Jaleel Okafor in Philadelphia, his defense was somewhat suspect coming into the league, but people counted on him to be the low-post beast that he's been, and he's providing that. You know, he's been an incredible scorer. So you have to consider that when you look at draft picks and rookies. And, and even if you're not in the lottery, chances are you're playing for a contract and you want to make a strong impression, so you want to score. But he seems to have a really good perspective for where he is on this roster and how he's being utilized. And maybe that's maybe that's Spolstra, maybe that's right. the other veterans on the team that have told him, look, brother, we just need you to come in there and play really effectively on defense, not look for your stats, and, and you're going to get recognized. I mean, he's getting paid as a top 10 draft pick, so you, you figure he, he's, he's content, at least financially. Um, but he's been he's been very comfortable in playing effectively. I know it sounds very cliche to say he's playing to his game or playing to his strength, but that's what he's been doing, and it's working. You know, He's coming off the bench and, and infusing some energy and defensive tenacity with that second unit that has been missing from the heat for a long time. Right, and I, I think, you know, like you said, Eric Spolstra, the organization, deserves some credit. I think I read a quote from Winslow a few days ago that said like, if, if he was with another team – he might have to, you know, score more points and, and shoulder more of a load offensively. Okay. But he realizes that, you know, with this Heat team, he doesn't really need to do that. And I think there's room for certainly for him to be more aggressive. And I think we've seen it in November that he's been a little bit more aggressive. Like he's, 
And the reason I say that he's got potential is not because he's not really scoring a lot of points or not taking a lot of shots. It's like the physical tools are there. Like, he's got a really fast first step. Like, really, really quick. And that you see that on defense when he jumps passing lanes and just, you know, it closes in on a defender on help defense and stuff. Like, that, that same first step qualifies for the offensive end. He's got a very quick first step. He can handle the ball really well. You know, he's got all those things. But I don't know if he never. I don't know if he necessarily needs to be the leading scorer ever, as far as that potential goes. But he can kind of branch out, you know, like Draymond Green in, in Golden State. Like I know we've made that comparison before, where but you see Draymond Green, he'll bring the ball up, he'll set, you know, he'll 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 set a play, you know, from the top of the key or or do a lot of different things. Like he's just versatile. He could do a lot of that stuff, and that's just like that's worth a max contract in the NBA nowadays. Like we talk about fans getting smarter. I think organizations are getting smarter too. They're willing to give max deals to those kind of guys. I mean, he's averaging nearly 29 minutes a game, so yeah. he's clearly getting a lot of playing time. And like the most, the most the minutes in the fourth quarter for the Heat, I think, right? Oh, yeah. I don't think Luol Deng's playing as much in the fourth. So, I mean, I mean, you certainly need a guy like like Winslow, who at this point is a little quicker, a little bit more mobile than Deng is, and a little bit more effective. I hate to say it because I think we've been somewhat supportive of Luol Deng in the past, even when he's been somewhat unproductive or inconsistent. And uh, Winslow's the better option, and it's working for the Miami Heat at this point. So, I mean, I think Heat fans just have to grin and bear it for another six or seven months because Luol Deng's only going to be here for a few, few more uh, games, and then you'll just have to get used to it. And then Winslow will finally crack the starting lineup, I think. Speaking of Luol Dang, I think when Gerald Green scored 25 points against the Knicks um, Friday night, a lot of people were starting to say, we should have started Green over Luol Dang. Mm. Which kind of sucks, because you can't just give credit to Green having a good game, filling in for the starter. It's like, oh, now we have to make this permanent. It's like, is he going to score 25 points every time he starts? <laughs> like, no. It's ridiculous. <laughs> But and Luol Deng, when he played against the Knicks the first time around Monday night, had a fine game. He played a good game. So you're almost discrediting Luol Deng for having a good game. He was just injured. He didn't really have a chance to defend himself. But um, I don't like the idea of Gerald Green starting. And the reason why is because if you start him, then that's another guy. And I've already talked about it before. That's another guy you have to feed that's in the starting unit. Like you, The great thing about Luol Deng in that starting unit, he doesn't need shots to do his thing. He just needs to move off the ball be available for a well-timed cut off the basket, be willing to fight for rebounds, defend at a consistent level. That's all you need from Luol Deng. Is he great? Is he worth the $10 million a year? No, absolutely not. Not even close, really. He's probably worth, at this point, $3, $3.5 million per season, just if you were to judge on his play alone. But there's something to not having a guy that you have to feed and then being able to bring in Gerald Green later, where in a second unit, you know, majority lineup where you don't have Wade and Bosch and Dragic and Whiteside and guys that need the ball to do things and need their shots. You just give the ball to Gerald Green every time and just let him go green light and just let him shoot whenever he wants. And then that's where he's most effective. And then Luol Deng is most effective in the starting unit. So I think if there's a change in the starting lineup, it's Winslow for Deng. And I would not be surprised if that did happen because the Heat are out, they're coming out of the gate pretty slow. I don't think Luol Deng helps them because he's a little slow. I think if you put Winslow in, he's a bit he's a better three point shooter at this point. Like Luol Deng is not good at three point shooting right now. Winslow's better. He's faster. He's a better defender at this point. So you at least can kind of bring down that margin a little bit when he's on the court. Um, and then you still can have that Luol Deng 
Winslow, Hassan Whiteside lineup is just you kind of flip their positions and bring them all dang later, and you still have that really great those two wings as the front court players plus Hassan Whiteside in the middle that great front that front man lineup that I like so much. You can still have that. So I think if there's a change, it's going to be that, but it's not going to be Gerald Green for Luol Deng. Oh, I agree. Um, just as a side note, uh, Chris Bosh has started off the game one for four against the Boston Celtics as we speak. So um, one for three on three-point attempts, and the Heat are currently down to Boston. Hmm. So he struggled somewhat, right? If you were to make what? He struggled. Chris Bosh has struggled somewhat. In November, especially, yeah, and that's the thing. Like I said before, I think that's something with Dragic and Bosh. It's like he doesn't really have the guy that's going to feed him. Like Dwayne Wade and Bosh, as long as they've played together, Wade's never really been the guy to feed Bosh. Even when LeBron was here, LeBron fed Bosh, right? Yeah. Their games don't really align that well, I don't think, because nobody respects Wade's outside games. So they're always just gonna, you know, you can help, you can help off the other one once the pass is made. I don't know. It's just like when when Bosch sets that pick for Wade, they're gonna sag either way. And then once Wade makes that pass, they can just go help onto Bosch. So you're not really afraid of that threat. Whereas Dragic has been a, a average to above average three point shooter in the past, then you worry about that because you can't really just sag off Dragic because then he could just shoot the three. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. I I think Bosch's thing is that he's just kind of. Right now, he's just a floor spacer, and then they'll get him the ball every once in a while, but he doesn't really have the guy to feed him right now. Yeah. yeah. But he's still, he's, still, he's still got a decent average, and he's struggling, which says a lot. It's the same thing with Dragic. It's just, once this team clicks and they get it, I think you'll see Bosch's and Dragic's numbers improve. And all we need, we just need that to happen in the playoffs. Just by, If it happens, you know, 70 games from now, we're good. I like your confidence. I like my confidence, too. Um, <laughs> it's gotten me very far. Uh, what was I going to say? But um, overall, I'm very happy with this team. I think that there's definitely room for improvement. Um, if you were going to make, however, one drastic, irrational move to this rotation while we're talking about rotations... What do you do? And I'm talking about like benching Wade or Bosch or Whiteside or something like that. Like if you could do one thing and just try it, don't have to worry about the human emotions about it. Just as far as a chemistry, like little tinker goes, what would you do? Wow, that is a tough one. Um, I guess it would probably be replace Winslow with Tang. That would be it. Yeah, I think so. Hmm. You? I bench Chris Bosch for Justice Winslow. Holy Christ! That is that is something. That's a that's a big move, Chris Bosh. Wow! So you keep Whiteside as a starter and insert Winslow as a power forward. Luol Deng as a power forward, and I want Luol Deng playing Paul Pierce's role that Paul Pierce had with the Wizards last season. Huh? Have they ever gone to a lineup like that? I don't think so. Not to start, but they do run that that front three quite a bit. And then what I would do is then you have Bosch come off the bench and just destroy the second. You know what? I don't like that idea. I scratched that idea. Never mind. That idea sucks. <laughs> no, it would be definitely Goran Dragic for the bench for Tyler Johnson. Okay. Yeah. Like I talked, for all the same reasons I said earlier. Extended time with Bosch in, the, in a more spaced out second unit. I think that's. Money and I and I would just do it and see how it works. And then once Dragic gets that confidence back, 
then you put him back into the starting lineup. That's yeah, because nothing, nothing imbues confidence like getting sent to the bench. <laughs> well, is he confident now? That's my is he con- like he just looks miserable on the court. Well, he's struggling, so I don't think you want to compound that by saying, "Hey, <laughs> thanks for stealing our money." Now hit the fucking bench. You know? <laughs> the thing I'm not is, sure that's how I it think works. as a head coach, you word it like, "Look." You're obviously struggling in the starting lineup. We're getting off to slow starts. You don't know where it, it's. We're we're all having a hard time figuring out this puzzle. It's not just you, but I think you in particular would have better luck being on. You know, coming off the bench with a more with a team like we can make this your lineup. Like the starting lineup isn't Dragic's lineup, but that second team with if you do a you know that second unit of you know Dragic, Gerald Green, Justice Winslow. You you leave Chris Bosh in there, and then Josh McRoberts, that that could be like your lineup, Goran. That's your lineup. You do what you want with it. You run the show there. I think that would like if you're playing on the if you're playing on just like the blacktops or whatever. If you're the starter in your rec league or whatever, and you suck, are you're gonna have more confidence if you come off the bench and play your game and your level? Are you not? Like I feel like I would have more confidence that way. Even if I was coming off the bench, I'd be like, well, at least I'm scoring and playing the way I want to play and feeling good about myself. Yeah, I don't. I don't think either of us have like a clear perspective on what it's like to be an NBA player and be <laughs> like and, and spend twenty something years thinking you're the best player in the world and then kind of being told, yeah, you're not quite as good and you're going to be sent to the bench. I mean, you look at why he left Phoenix in the first place. He was tired of being the third point guard in a three-guard lineup that wasn't working and he wanted to make his money elsewhere and he was given that money. I just just don't know it was... I don't know that would work, man. I I mean, I I like what you're saying and I like the egoless approach that Tyler Johnson has and I understand why, you know, it sounds like it would work on a technical level a million times over, but I just don't think that you can discount how much of a negative impact it would have on Goran Dragic's mm-hmm. psyche. When you promise him the world and all you're going to say is like, ah, you know, you're not good enough. You're not ready to handle it just yet. Go back to the bench and see if you can flourish in that role. Because then what happens if he does flourish as a, as a second stringer? Is there any guarantee that he's going to go back into the starting lineup and continue to flourish? I, I just don't know. If, if what works best is him playing with guys like Gerald Green or Justice Winslow or uh, even, I don't know, Amara Stoudemire or others like that, or maybe Chris Bosh, he develops that chemistry, that, or Josh McRoberts that we're hoping that he'll get. Is he going to be able to get it again with Dwayne Wade? Is he going to be able to get it again with Lou Dang or Hassan Whiteside? I'm not so sure. So you kind of want to hope that if you leave him in there long enough, then eventually it'll come around because these guys are smart enough, capable enough, experienced enough to, to know how to mesh together and work on it over the course of the season. They've been somewhat lucky because their schedule's been a little soft and they've been playing a lot of home games. They're going to start their former game home stretch now. So, I mean, they, they've they've gotten a nice break in their schedule. It's going to get worse. So you kind of you need him to be more potent in the starting lineup, not have a reduced role where you hope that maybe he'll become better and more confident. Again, that's just my perspective, no. but I, I don't think Spolster is going to do that. I agree. Like, overall, I agree with you. I just keep talking myself into putting Dragic on the bench, and you keep arguing with me, so I'm going to keep arguing that point. But right. <laughs> overall, I do agree with you. I'm trying to remember that. However, <laughs> that said, are you one of those fans that say you can't bench Dragic because you traded two first-round picks and paid him $85 million? Or do you not care? Like, I don't care. Like, if you're going to... if you're gonna, 
if you're going to reason that you need him to start, is the reason that he needs to start is because you traded two first-round picks for him? Even if it's he a, ends games? Like, that seems like a lame reason. It's It plays a part. I don't think you can deny it. I mean, you, you not just the trade to acquire him, but the money that you're spending on him. But I the mean, team overall is better with him on it, which I think it would be, regardless if, if he started or not, and still closed out games in the fourth quarter with lineups that, you know, the Heat don't even put Dang in the fourth quarter, and he's a starter. Like, they, the, that, the team that ends the game isn't necessarily the team that starts the game, but it's if the team is better overall, isn't it worth the money? Regardless if they're better immediately or when the bench comes in or whatever, if they're just better overall, if their record's better, if they win a championship, isn't it worth the $85 million? Like, look I at Tristan Thompson. He's making $80 million. He's coming off the bench. Yeah, I guess the closest, you know, thing would be the David Lee situation mm-hmm. with Golden State. But Miami's not at that point. They're not deep enough. They're not so well-rounded. They're not playing at such a at a high level where people can't keep pace. They don't have a Steph Curry to make a guy like David Lee basically superfluous and unnecessary. So if they kind of go through this whole season then, and that chemistry, it just ne- that starting lineup just never quite clicks, and then they go into next year, can they make the argument that you can bench Dragic at that point? Because... The other thing is, you mentioned to Phoenix why he wasn't happy. He also wasn't making $85 million in Phoenix. Yeah. Um, like, if you're getting paid $85 million, life can't be that bad. I don't think you would keep him as such an expensive role player on the bench. I'd say. Mm. I, I think that Pat Riley in particular would try to package him and try to send him somewhere else. Mm. Interesting. Because uh, I think you've given up way too much, not just in contract, but also in draft picks and things of that sort. They need to have some kind of assets. They're not going to continue to get lucky and, and get a guy like Justice Winslow. Chances are they're not going to be in the lottery this year. They're going to either have to strike gold. They don't even have a first-round pick this year. So what are they going to be able to acquire in the offseason to make a guy like Goran Dragic become unnecessary? Now, Tyler Johnson, they already have him. Sure. Oh, I Mario Chalmers start is Tyler agent. Johnson. Mario Chalmers is a free agent. If you can get a guy, I won't even bring that up. I would <laughs> love they, to, for it to happen. If they re-sign but... Mario Chalmers, that would be the happiest day of my life. Um, if you get a guy named Kevin Durant, then hell Ooh. yeah. I think that all of a sudden Goran Dragic becomes really, really unnecessary, and you can look to move him for anything. I mean, whoever's willing to take on that salary, and I'm sure there won't be a, lo- a long line of people willing to do it, uh, yeah, if you can move him. And you can get a guy like Kevin Durant where all of a sudden you don't need – you can have anybody throwing lobs to Durant or, or finding him on the perimeter, et cetera. Uh, yeah, sure. Find a way to move Dragic. Or, or even if you can get if you can get Durant and keep Goran Dragic on the bench and he's happy with it, or even if he's not happy with it, who cares? You've got Kevin Durant in the goddamn starting lineup. You don't need Goran Dragic to be happy, you know? That's fine. That's that. Then all of a sudden you become an elite-level team like the Golden State Warriors, where they could say, yeah, David Lee's $20 million are, are sitting on the bench. We don't care. You know, We've got Steph Curry. We've got Klay Thompson. We've got Draymond Green, etc. You, you get all these different pieces where David Lee becomes superfluous, and you don't have that in Miami right now. I like where you're going right now. Do you Signing think, Kevin Durant? Yeah. Do you think the Heat are real? It's been rumored. It's yeah. been talked about. But now... You know, somewhat into the season, seeing where the Thunder are at, and you cover the Thunder, so you can kind of get, I think you have a better perspective on this than I do, if he doesn't like where Billy Donovan's direction is going, and the Thunder in general, and he leaves, are the Heat a real contender to get Durant? Yes. They are. 
because I think that anytime you, I mean, from what we've heard from Adrian Wojnarowski about his, his great piece covering LaMarcus Aldridge's free agency, um, mm. from what I remember from having read this a few weeks ago, it was pretty clear that Aldridge was going to sign with either, I want to say, the Spurs or the Trailblazers. Like, oh no, I'm sorry, Phoenix. Phoenix emerged as the second best contender because they had signed Tyson Chandler and they had Bledsoe, et cetera. So they had a good team already built. That was before the the Morris twins, the Morai blew up and everything else. So they had a good they had a good framework in place and they emerged as the best option to sign Aldridge. They were that close, but San Antonio was able to sell them. But from what I remember Riley is just, he really is excellent at, at being able to talk to players and connect with them at a level that anybody can. And I don't know that he's always had that direct, I mean, I don't, I don't know that he's always had that in, in, uh, in Seattle or in Oklahoma City. For everything that Sam Presti does well, and there's some question marks that I know you've brought up in the past about what he does well, I don't think he has that kind of connection with players where he can look them in the eye and, and just like, I don't know, have like some kind of magnetism there. You know, there's a, a, a an air about Riley. I know that sounds really cheesy and cliche, but hell, LeBron James was the best player on the planet and could have done anything he wanted to. He had He's held the, the league hostage twice in free agency over the past five years, and, and he was captivated by Pat Riley. I know that played a big part of it. Maybe they already had an agreement in place in 2010 with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh, but maybe not. I'd like to think that Riley is still capable somewhat of wooing a player that's experienced as much as LeBron James has, as much as Kevin Durant has. Um, It certainly had an impact on LaMarcus Aldridge. He came away extremely impressed with the Heat front office, with the organization, with the team, and certainly with Riley. I think when you look at Kevin Durant, I think he would be Really, really, like there would be a certain appeal to coming to Miami just because of Riley and because there's a framework there. And you can sell him the same thing you sold LeBron on in 2010. Look, we know how to win. We have the framework. We have the coaching staff. We have everything that you need to get you that championship so that you won't be looked at as one of the all-time greats that never won the ring. If he came in, if he came to Miami, I think it's the team that would give him the best chance of winning a, a ring right away and being able to capitalize on that aspect and say, oh, at least I've got that done. No more questions about my ability to get to that next level. No more Mr. Irrelevant or whatever that was the Oklahoman wrote right. about him three years ago. Um, so that's certainly an appealing factor there. Having said that, I have no idea what he's going to do. Nobody does. But there are days where I think he's fed up as hell with Oklahoma City, and he goes on tirades about the media in general, and nobody knows shit, and you know why is everybody criticizing Kobe Bryant when he's an all-time great, et cetera, et cetera. The Miami media is very friendly to the team. I agree. I agree. Um, that matters. I, I, I think so, Especially too. Especially with somebody think, like Durant, I think. I think you have to consider the fact that folks in Oklahoma – Really, quite honestly, haven't had an NBA team to cover for. for right. They don't really know basketball that well. They don't have a professional football team. They don't have a professional baseball team. Mm. There's no dealing with professional athletes. You can rip on a 19-year-old kid out of you know 
Tulsa that's going to Oklahoma State or the University of Oklahoma, and you can rip on him for being a bad quarterback or running back, etc. And there's no way for them to attack you in person. But you know what? Kevin Durant doesn't have to take your shit because he makes more money in one year than you will in 20 lifetimes. And so when guys like Barry Trammell call him, you know, Mr. Irrelevant, or they criticize the front office and things of that sort, or they rip on, uh, you know, Russell Westbrook. You know, he internalizes that. He feels it. And so there's a there's some question as to whether or not he can deal with that. Having said that, he's also a big part of the Oklahoma community. So, you know, I've, I've gone on a huge tangent here, but I, I never know exactly where he's going to be from day to day because there are times where he seems incredibly disgruntled. And then there are other times where he seems genuinely appreciative of what the state of Oklahoma and the people of Oklahoma feel for him. And, you know, he was recently inducted into the State Hall of Fame. Not just a sports Hall of Fame, but their state Hall of Fame for everything he's done for his, you know, philanthropic adventures and everything else that he's done. But that was kind of pandering, right? That was like, let's make this your home, Kevin. Like, I thought that was a little pandering. Yes, but it works. Yes, good point. It it does work. I don't know. You're you're an athlete who has been told... From the time you were five or six, you're the best. You know, you don't have to worry about your math homework so much. Or, you know, when you get to college, we'll get you a car. You want that girl, she's yours, et cetera, et cetera. So when you, when you get to, you know, he's 28 or whatever, and he's still in the NBA, and he's some multimillionaire. He's been all over the world. He's won everything but an NBA ring. And they're telling him, of all the people who have ever lived in this state ever, you're one of the finest, and we love you, and we appreciate you that much. I mean, that's really what it comes yeah. down to, right? Yeah. I mean that that's gotta pull at some heartstrings for a guy like him, you know, uh, you know, coming from his situation and living in the inner city, et cetera. I mean, he didn't have much growing up and all of a sudden now he's being recognized as one of the finest people to ever live in the state of Oklahoma. It could work. Or it could not work. Or it could not, right. I mean there are I mean, I don't know that Washington is nearly as strong a contender. I think that's something. being overblown. I don't understand like does he all this whole idea of going home, like, we only talk about that when it's, like, really good players. And I get it, like, they have more choices than, like, the average or above average player, but I don't know. I don't know if I believe that, like... I don't either. And somebody brought up this great point. It's like, you know what, he had one choice before to whether or not he wanted to play for, say, Georgetown University exactly. or elsewhere, and he said, see you later. He took right. off and went to Texas. Exactly. I don't think he cares it's about like, being if LeBron home was gonna, If LeBron was going to go to college, he was going to Ohio State. We know that. He said, he right. said that. Like, that's an understanded thing, understood thing. But, yeah, you're right. Durant left already. Like, he doesn't necessarily need to st- be in Washington. And why would you go to – like, are you going to go play for the Wizards? Are you going right. to go play for Michael Jordan? Does that – like, is him being the owner, like, with no track record of success, really well, he's that – not owner in Washington anymore. Oh, I'm sorry. He's the owner in Charlotte. My bad. He was. He was. Yes. He was the general manager in Washington. He's also not going to the Hornets. So, Charlotte fans, <laughs> cool your jets. You know who is going to the Hornets is Hassan Whiteside. I've said that before. You think he is? I think so. I think I think he's a guy oh, who boy. goes home because they're going to throw a lot of big Al Jefferson money at him. So I think it's going to happen. Huh. Yep. Sorry. I, I think if the Heat want him, he stays. But are you saying that if Durant goes to Miami, then Miami lets Whiteside walk to Charlotte? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh yeah, is there any doubt? I mean, I don't, I don't think they can afford him. I think Whiteside's the kind of guy at this point who wants to say, "Oh, I want to get paid." Understandably, you know, he's yeah. he's not like Durant, who's been getting paid up to this point and is going to continue to get paid wherever he goes. If Whiteside takes the money, I cannot blame him. He's not getting paid anything. He needs to make right. money. Right. 
I mean, he's getting paid relatively more than you and I are, but that's right. not much on the NBA scale. Um, and he's going to command at least a $15 million per year contract somewhere. Yep. At least. I mean, at he'd least. have to be a, a proven disaster offensively, which he isn't. He'd have to be a proven locker room cancer, which he hasn't been. There's a good chance that he could get whatever deal he gets elsewhere and fall apart without the kind of structure and framework that the yep. Heat front office provides. But that's somebody else's problem for another time, and we don't know what's going to happen. But yeah, if, if, if Charlotte... If Charlotte says, you know what, we're going to sign Nick Batum, we're going to build around MKG, even though he's injured this year, and we've got enough other players like Jeremy Lin, etc., to kind of fuel the future of this franchise. Oh, yeah. I, Kemba I think Walker, yeah. Yeah, Kemba Walker, etc. Yeah, the pick and rolls between Kemba Walker and Whiteside. One thing is, on a lot of message boards, Whiteside's being mes- uh, mentioned from a lot of other teams. I know the Hornet- Hornets fans have mentioned Whiteside. Laker fans have mentioned Whiteside. Like Laker fans mention everybody. That's true. They're gonna. He's gonna get a max deal. You know who signed well, the Lakers? He, well, I won't say this. He will get offered max deals if the Heat offer him less, and he decides to stay within the structure and just be kind of, you know, take less money. Still take a lot of money, but take less money and stay within the Heat. He might not get the max deal, but he will get offered max deals for sure. I think the Lakers are signing a big three of Jesus Christ, Santa Claus, and the Easter Bunny, and that's going to fuel them for the next twenty years and, and propel them to the next era of, of championship greatness. I like the Easter Bunny's ball handling. So, <laughs> and Santa Claus, despite like the Boar's DL like dimensions, <laughs> he's a strong finisher at the rim, and he can really fight for those boards. So great he has, he's a, too. Great an underrated footwork. offensive rebounder. Yeah, great footwork. <laughs> Like Chris Carroll right there. Um, uh, okay, let's get to um, zero or not zero really quick before we wrap this up. Um, well, Boston should be an easy one considering we're down, I think, like 10 at this point. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll approach this one. I think they're. They came back. The second string came back. They're up one, 40 to 39 over Boston at this point. So, oh, good. I'm going to say the Heat are going to win this game, and I don't know why I would say that, but I have a pretty strong feeling about this one. And what do you, what's your feeling about Boston? Oh, um, they are definitely not serial. Hmm. I like I like Amir Johnson providing color commentary on <laughs> Kelly Olynyk trying to eat a. I want to say it was a Moe's. It might have been Moe's. I think it was a Moe's Southwest Grill burrito in four bites. It's a good burrito. Six, he successfully finished it, I think. Uh, it was pretty disgusting to watch, but it was also very fun. And it just kind of shows you these antics that go on behind the scenes. You know, now with the proliferation of uh, social media and recording devices everywhere, you really get a, a, a good view as to what happens on these team planes. This guy's a multimillionaire. He was a high draft pick, and all this, he's still eating Moe's? I don't feel so bad about getting it nowadays. Yeah, happy Moe's Monday, by the way. <laughs> Is that a thing? Yeah, Moe's Monday. It's, uh, I've never heard of it. It's, you know, you go to Moe's and you get a burrito. Well, when I was in college, it wasn't that long ago. It was like three years ago. But um, it was Moe's Monday. And then they had Moe's Thursday on my college campus, too. Which was great. <laughs> There's no, no alliteration, but we didn't care. All um, right. How do, you, how do you feel about walking into a Moe's and being told, welcome to Moe's? I like it. It's nice. Do you really? Yeah, I, my thing is I don't know what to say back. I'll be like, thanks. Like, <laughs> yeah. hi. <laughs> I just at at some point I just think I would just either like kind of wave or give like the cool head nod or just be like, I'm not gonna hear that. I'm just gonna ignore it. 
I know oh. you have to say it, and I don't really care. It's like when you I... go to Chick-fil-A and you say, thanks, and they always say, my pleasure. It's like, I know you have to say it. It's not really your pleasure. Right. right. Um, no, yeah, absolutely. But most people, yeah, like it's $6 it. for a burrito and chips. It's great. I don't like it, though. I don't, I you don't like Moe's? I, I like no Moe's. I like just oh, fine. You're not not they, the welcome to Moe's. You don't. I like don't it. like the welcome. I think it's fake. I think it's it perfunctory, is. and I think there's a definite ratio. You know, if you want to go analytics on it, you can say there's a definite ratio as to when a manager is present and the ah. loudness, the, <laughs> the loudness <laughs> with which they welcome you, and the earnestness with which they display, right. which I think is fake anyway. So it's yeah. like yes, welcome to Moe's when there's a manager standing right next to me. Otherwise, I'm going to go well to Moe's and mumble as you walk in through the door. Welcome to whatever. You get the point. Uh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want you to like actually say hello. Thank you for coming into Moe's. How What's can your I name? Help you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where are you from? Did you travel <laughs> far to get here? Um, exactly. No, I live around the corner. I don't know why I'm here. I'm drunk. That's why I'm here. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um. It's similar to when you walk into Foot Locker or something, and they're like, can I help you find anything? And you're like, can you just give me a break for a second? I just walked in. Right. I just got here. I, I just got here. Shoes. Chill out. All right? I don't yeah. even know what I want. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I want shoes. I don't know which ones, and I don't think you can help me pick them. <laughs> right. No, you can't help me right now. I'll see you in 15 minutes. All right. right. <laughs> so, long story short, Boston's not cereal. How about the Thunder? Um, cereal, I think, at this point, right? That is a tough one to say because there's enough personalities there where you can mm. say they're not serial. Like you got a guy like Stephen Adams, um, he's a definite serial contender, and 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 Westbrook and Durant are closet serial types where they're kind of they've got a little streak to them where they're a little relaxed, etc. But there's so much hinging on this season that I think it, it weighs on them. I think it weighs on them as individuals. They're a little a tight, huh? So yeah, as serial. a franchise, I think. And the city, the fan base, being the collegiate fan base that they are, a collegiate football fan base that they are, every loss is a drastic woe is me kind of event. It's like you've got 82 games. It's okay to go you know, missing a game in November or losing a game in November or January or even February or March. It's okay. It's really not that big a deal. You can, but you can every, lose 20 of them. You're fine. Right. You're still going to be historically good. You're going to be 62 and 20. That's okay. Right. Don't worry about it. But no, but that's not how they feel. It's like you lose one game, you go on a two game losing streak and you might as well just throw yourself off the roof. I mean, there's no point in watching it. <laughs> and, and it certainly heightened even though they've got full blinders when it comes to Kevin Durant's free agency, they don't. They refuse. It's like, no way. Why would he want to go anywhere else? Oklahoma is the best place to live. We love tornadoes. Um, <laughs> you know, I shouldn't make fun because they've been disastrous. And to any Thunder fans listening, I understand yeah. completely the impact of tornadoes in Oklahoma. But, I mean, they, they really, when it comes to Durant, they refuse to accept that he's going anywhere. Like it you, sounds familiar. I mean, Magic fans refused to believe Dwight was going anywhere until the very last minute. Cleveland fans. Cleveland fans until he actually left, and I'm still not sure that any of them believe that those four years happened. Right. Um, no, yeah. they've erased it from their memory. Well, I think it's... a lot of – I've heard that Cleveland fans think it was all conspiracies so that Cleveland would tank and get better picks to get better players, and LeBron was always planning on going back there within four years in the first place after Kyrie Irving got better. Yeah, the fact that he won whatever he did in Miami, that was pfft, It wasn't the even cake. the point. It wasn't even the point. Right. He just wanted Cares. to get out of the cold weather for a little bit. Right. Now he's back where he belongs. Yeah, and it was the plan all along. Anyway, so speaking of the Cavs, uh, not cereal. 
Not zero. Definitely not. Expectations are equally high. I mean, higher there than they are in Oklahoma City. LeBron's got a mustache and he's dressing like a madman right now. It's not zero. What do you think of this whole Movember thing? Are you are you in it? I'm I'm so on board. Really? Yep. yep but, love it. But Any you're excuse? not growing one. I did. I grew I grew a full beard. I'm not allowed to do the mustache because I look like a rapist. But um, it's fine. Like I do the I did the full beard, and then every year I do the I just don't shave. I grow it out, and then I shave it right before Thanksgiving so that I look nice for the holidays. But it's, but, it's, it's you know not the end of November yet. That's kind of you know. Well, yeah, I do like half-ass November, but yeah, that's my life. I just half-ass everything. Right. Huge confidence, half-ass everything else. Um, <laughs> but you can afford to half-ass it when you have that kind of Mario-like levels of confidence. That's it. We figured it out. We've come full circle in the podcast, and we've finally understood the meaning of Chalmers. I mean, that's it. The, the Tao of Mario. Holy cow. Why need why need anything else when you have confidence? Right, I don't Fake really have to you make produce. It. I know I can. I don't have to do it. That's why he always has the mustache. It's November every month for him. Holy damn. wow! This makes so much sense. It's like I'm experiencing a paradigm shift. My brain actually hurts because it's like, yeah, he really does think that. It's like I could give maximum effort. I don't have to. I've already proven that I can. I've already shown that I can win at the highest level. I don't have to do anything else, you know. Despite the ten thousand fans, you know, going fucking chalmers. They he, he doesn't care about them. He's already gone to a higher level of existence. He's moved on. Wow. This all makes sense now. Maybe he thought that the fucking was more of a verb as opposed to an adjective. No, no. They're like, that's what they want to do. They must love me. (laughs) That that would seem to make sense, right? It's like, yes, I'll choose some of you, not all of you, but thanks. (laughs) We can make a video out of it. We'll get rich. (laughs) Who wouldn't want to see me? Yeah, I get it. I understand your perspective, but I can't satisfy all of you. will be White Stripes, Seven Nation Army. We'll play that in the background. But a really groovy funk bass line to it. I mean, really nice and slow. Wow, we've totally gone off the rails. That's a perfect way to end this podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to The Heat Check, David. Thanks for joining me. Um, Catch The Heat Check on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and of course, the very great HP podcast network of the people at Hardwood Paroxysm. Big announcement, we just passed a million listens as a network fantastic thank you for listening to the heat check thank you for listening to all the hardwood paroxysm podcasts and checking us out and saying nice things about us on itunes because we really do appreciate we read it all and i will give a prize to the next person not really just rate us review us say nice things about us keep listening to the heat check we're glad we're back we'll be back soon thanks again for joining me david take care wes thanks for listening (laughs) 